Chapter 35 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz, translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. Chapter 35 Almost twenty days passed. The king remained continually at the junction of the rivers, and sent couriers to fortresses and commands in every direction toward Krakow and Warsaw, with orders for all to hasten to him with assistance. They sent him also provisions by the Vistula in as great quantities as possible, but insufficient. After ten days, the Swedes began to eat horse-flesh. Despair seized the king and the generals at thought of what would happen when the cavalry should lose their horses, and when there would be no beasts to draw cannon. From every side, too, there came unpleasant news. The whole country was blazing with war, as if someone had poured pitch over it and set fire. Inferior commands and garrisons could not hasten to give aid, for they were not able to leave the towns and villages. Lithuania, held hitherto by the iron hand of Pontus de Legardie, rose as one man. Great Poland, which had yielded first of all, was the first to throw off the yoke and shone before the whole commonwealth as an example of endurance, resolve, and enthusiasm. Parties of nobles and peasants rushed not only on the garrisons in villages, but even attacked towns. In vain did the Swedes take terrible vengeance on the country. In vain did they cut off the hands of prisoners. In vain did they send up villages in smoke, cut settlements to pieces, raise gibbets, bring instruments of torture from Germany to torture insurgents. Whoso had to suffer, suffered. Whoso had to die, died. But if he was a noble, he died with a sabre, if a peasant, with a scythe in his hand. And Swedish blood was flowing throughout all great Poland. The peasants were living in the forests, even women rushed to arms. Punishments merely roused vengeance and increased rage. Kulesha, Zhegotsky, and the voyevoda of Podlaski moved through the country like flames, and besides their parties, all the pine woods were filled with other parties. The fields lay untilled. Fierce hunger increased in the land, but it twisted most the entrails of the Swedes, for they were confined in towns behind closed gates, and could not go to the open country. At last, breath was failing in their bosoms. In Mazovia the condition was the same. There, the Berkshire people, dwelling in forest gloom, came out of their wildernesses, blocked the roads, seized provisions and couriers. In Podlaski, a numerous small nobility marched in thousands either to Sapieha or to Lithuania. Lubelski was in the hands of the Confederates. From the distant Russias came Tartars, and with them the Cossacks constrained to obedience. Therefore all were certain that if not in a week, in a month, if not in a month, in two, 
that river fork in which Carl Gustav had halted with the main army of the Swedes would be turned into one great tomb to the glory of the nation, a great lesson for those who would attack the Commonwealth. The end of the war was foreseen already. There were some who said that one way of salvation alone remained to Karl, to ransom himself and give Swedish Livland to the Commonwealth. But suddenly the fortune of Karl and the Swedes was bettered. Marienburg, besieged hitherto in vain, surrendered March 20 to Steinbock. His powerful and valiant army had then no occupation and could hasten to the rescue of the king. From another direction, the Markgraf of Baden, having finished levies, was marching also to the river fork with ready forces and soldiers yet unwearied. Both pushed forward, breaking up the smaller bands of insurgents, destroying, burning, slaying. Along the road they gathered in Swedish garrisons, took the smaller commands, and increased in power as a river increases the more it takes streams to its bosom. Tidings of the fall of Marienburg, of the army of Steinbock, and the march of the Markgraf of Baden came very quickly to the fork of the river, and grieved Polish hearts. Steinbock was still far away, but the Markgraf, advancing by forced marches, might soon come up and change the whole position at Saint-Domierge. The Polish leaders then held a council in which Czarniecki, Sapieha, Michał Radziwiłł, Witowski and Lubomirski, who had grown tired of being on the Vistula, took part. At this council it was decided that Sapieha, with the Lithuanian army, was to remain to watch Karl and prevent his escape. Czarniecki was to move against the Markgraf of Baden and meet him as quickly as possible. If God gave him victory, he would return to besiege Karl Gustav. Corresponding orders were given at once. Next morning the trumpets sounded to horse so quietly that they were barely heard. Czarniecki wished to depart unknown to the Swedes. At his recent campground, a number of unoccupied parties of nobles and peasants took position at once. They kindled fires and made an uproar so that the enemy might think that no one had left the place. But Czarniecki's squadrons moved out one after another. First marched the louder squadron, which by right should have remained with Sapieha. But since Czarniecki had fallen greatly in love with this squadron, the hetman was loath to take it from him. After the louder went the von Sovich squadron, chosen men led by an old soldier, half of whose life had been passed in shedding blood. Then followed the squadron of Prince Dmitri Vishnyovetsky, under the same Shandorovsky who at Rudnik had covered himself with immeasurable glory. Then two regiments of Vitovsky's dragoons, two regiments of the Starosta of Yavorov, the famed Stapkovsky led one, then Czarniecki's own regiment, the King's regiment under Polonovsky and Lubomirsky's whole force. No infantry was taken because of haste, nor wagons, for the army went on horseback. All were drawn up together at Zavada in good strength and great willingness. Then Czarniecki himself went out in front, and after he had arranged them for the march, he withdrew his horse somewhat and let them pass so as to review well the whole force. The horse under him sniffed, threw up his head, 
and nodded as if wishing to greet the passing regiments and the heart swelled in the castellan himself a beautiful view is before him as far as the eye reached a river of horses a river of stern faces of soldiers welling up and down with the movement of the horses above them still a third river of sabres and lances glittering and gleaming in the morning sun a tremendous power went forth from them and charnyetsky felt the power in himself for that was not some kind of collection of volunteers but men forged on the anvil of battle trained exercised and in conflict so venomous that no cavalry on earth of equal numbers could withstand them therefore charnetsky felt with certainty without doubt that he would bear asunder with sabres and hoofs the army of the markgraf of baden and that victory felt in advance made his face so radiant that it gleamed on the regiments with god to victory cried he at last with god we will conquer answered mighty voices and that shout flew through all the squadrons like deep thunder through clouds charnetsky spurred his horse to come up with the louder squadron marching in the van the army moved forward they advanced not like men but like a flock of ravening birds which having wind of a battle from afar fly to outstrip the tempest never even among tartars in the steppes had any man heard of such a march the soldiers slept in the saddles they ate and drank without dismounting they fed the horses from their hands rivers forests villages were left behind them scarcely had peasants hurried out from their cottages to look at the army when the army had vanished behind clouds of dust in the distance they marched day and night resting only just enough to escape killing the horses at kozhenitsa they came upon eight swedish squadrons under torneskjold the louder men marching in the van first saw the enemy and without even drawing breath sprang at them straightway and into the fire next advanced shandarovsky then von sovich and then stapkovsky the swedes thinking that they had to deal with some mere common parties met them in the open field and two hours later there was not a living man left to go to the markgraf and tell him that charnetsky was coming those eight squadrons were simply swept asunder on sabres without leaving a witness of defeat then the poles moved straight on to magnushev for spies informed them that the markgraf was at varka with his whole army vorodyovsky was sent in the night with a party to learn how the army was disposed and what its power was zagloba complained greatly of that expedition for even the famed vishnyovetsky had never made such marches as this therefore the old man complained but he chose to go with pan mihal rather than remain with the army it was a golden time at sandomierge said he stretching himself in the saddle a man ate drank and looked at the besieged swedes in the distance but now there is not time even to put a canteen into your mouth i know the military arts of the ancients of the great pompey and caesar but charnitsky has invented a new style 
it is contrary to every rule to shake the stomach so many days and nights the imagination begins to rebel in me from hunger and it seems to me continually that the stars are buckwheat pudding and the moon cheese to the dogs with such warfare as god is dear to me i want to gnaw my own horse's ears off from hunger to-morrow god grant we shall rest after finishing the swedes i would rather have the swedes than this tediousness o lord o lord when wilt thou give peace to this commonwealth and to Zagwaba a warm place at the stove, and heated beer, even without cream. Batter along, old man, on your nag, batter along, till you batter your body to death. Has any one there snuff? Maybe I could sneeze out this sleepiness through my nostrils. The moon is shining through my mouth, looking into my stomach, but I cannot tell what the moon is looking for there. It will find nothing i repeat to the dogs with such warfare if uncle thinks that the moon is cheese then eat it uncle said roch kowalski if i should eat you i might say that i had eaten beef but i am afraid that after such a roast i should lose the rest of my wit if i am an ox and uncle is my uncle then what is uncle but you fool do you think that altea gave birth to a firebrand because she sat by the stove how does that touch me in this way if you are an ox then ask about your father first not about your uncle for a bull carried off europa but her brother who was uncle to her children was a man for all that do you understand to tell the truth i do not but as to eating i could eat something myself eat the devil and let me sleep what is it pan mihal why have we halted Varka is in sight, answered Vovodyovsky. See, the church tower is gleaming in the moonlight. But have we passed Magnushev? Magnushev is behind on the right. It is a wonder to me that there is no Swedish party on this side of the river. Let us go to those thickets and stop. Perhaps God may send us some informant. Pan Mihal led his detachment to the thicket, and disposed it about a hundred yards from the road on each side, ordering the men to remain silent and hold the bridles closely so the horses might not neigh. Wait, said he, let us hear what is being done on the other side of the river, and perhaps we may see something. They stood there waiting, but for a long time nothing was to be heard. The wearied soldiers began to nod in the saddles. Zagwaba dropped on the horse's neck and fell asleep. Even the horses were slumbering. An hour passed. The accurate ear of Vordyovsky heard something like the tread of a horse on a firm road. Hold! Silence! said he to the soldiers. He pushed out himself to the edge of the thicket and looked along the road. The road was gleaming in the moonlight like a silver ribbon. There was nothing visible on it, Still the sound of horses came nearer. "'They are coming, surely,' said Vordyovsky. All held their horses more closely, each one restraining his breath. Meanwhile on the road appeared a Swedish party of thirty horsemen. They rode slowly and carelessly enough, not in line, but in a straggling row. Some of the soldiers were talking, others were singing in a low voice. 
for the night, warm as in May, acted on the ardent souls of the soldiers. Without suspicion, they passed near Pan Mihau, who was standing so hard by the edge of the thicket that he could catch the odour of horses and the smoke of pipes which the soldiers had lighted. At last they vanished at the turn of the road. Vorodyovsky waited till the tramp had died in the distance. Then only did he go to his men and say to Pan Yan and Pan Stanislav, Let us drive them now, like geese, to the camp of the Castellan. Not a man must escape, lest he give warning. If Charnyetsky does not let us eat, then sleep, said Zagwava, I will resign his service and return to Sapio. With Sapio, when there is a battle, there is a battle, but when there is a respite, there is a feast. If you had four lips, he would give each one of them enough to do. He is the leader for me. And in truth, tell me by what devil are we not serving with Sapio, since this regiment belongs to him by right? Father, do not blaspheme against the greatest warrior in the Commonwealth, said Pan Yan. It is not I that blaspheme, but my entrails on which hunger is playing as on a fiddle. The Swedes will dance to the music, interrupted Vordyovsky. Now, gentlemen, let us advance quickly. I should like to come up with them exactly at that inn in the forest which we passed in coming hither. And he led on the squadron quickly, but not too quickly. They rode into a dense forest in which darkness enclosed them. The inn was less than two miles distant. When Vorodyovsky had drawn near, he went again at a walk, so as not to alarm the Swedes too soon. When not more than a cannon shot away, the noise of the men was heard. They are there and making an uproar, said Pan Mihau. The Swedes had, in fact, stopped at the inn, looking for some living person to give information. But the place was empty. Some of the soldiers were shaking up the main building. Others were looking in the cowhouse, in the shed, or raising the thatch on the roof. One half of the men remained on the square, holding the horses of those who were searching. Pan Mihau's division approached within a hundred yards and began to surround the inn with a tartar crescent. Those of the Swedes standing in front heard perfectly, and at last saw men and horses. Since, however, it was dark in the forest, they could not see what kind of troops were coming. But they were not alarmed in the least, not admitting that others than Swedes could come from that point. At last the movement of the crescent astonished and disturbed them. They called at once to those who were in the buildings. Suddenly a shout of Allah was heard, and the sound of shots. In one moment dark crowds of soldiers appeared, as if they had grown out of the earth. Now came confusion, a flash of sabres, oaths, smothered shouts, but the whole affair did not last longer than the time needed to say the Lord's Prayer twice. There remained on the ground before the inn five bodies of men and horses. Vordyovsky moved on, taking with him twenty-five prisoners. They advanced at a gallop, urging the Swedish horses with the sides of their sabres, and arrived at Magnushev at daybreak. In Charnetsky's camp no one was sleeping. All were ready. The castellan himself came out, leaning on his staff, thin and pale from watching. How is it? asked he of Pan Mihau. Have you many informants? Twenty-five prisoners. 
Did many escape? All are taken. Only send you, soldier, even to hell. Well done. Take them at once to the torture. I will examine them. Then the castellan turned, and when departing said, But be in readiness, for perhaps we may move on the enemy without delay. How is that? asked Zagwaba. Be quiet, said Vorovsky. The prisoners, without being burned, told in a moment what they knew of the forces of the Markgraf, how many cannons he had, what infantry and cavalry. Charnetsky grew somewhat thoughtful, for he learned that it was really a newly levied army, but formed of the oldest soldiers, who had taken part in God knows how many wars. There were also many Germans among them, and a considerable division of French, the whole force exceeded that of the Poles by several hundred. But it appeared from the statements of the prisoners that the Markgraf did not even admit that Charnetsky was near, and believed that the Poles were besieging Karl Gustav with all their forces at Saint-Domiège. The castellan had barely heard this when he sprang up and cried to his attendant, Vitovsky, give command to sound the trumpet to horse. Half an hour later, the army moved and marched in the fresh spring morning through forests and fields covered with dew. At last Varka, or rather its ruins, for the place had been burned almost to the ground six years before, appeared on the horizon. Charnetsky's troops were marching over an open flat. Therefore they could not be concealed from the eyes of the Swedes. In fact they were seen, but the Markgraf thought that they were various parties which had combined in a body with the intent of alarming the camp. Only when squadron after squadron, advancing at a trot, appeared from beyond the forest, did a feverish activity rise in the Swedish camp. Charnitsky's men saw smaller divisions of horsemen and single officers hurrying between the regiments. The bright-coloured Swedish infantry began to pour into the middle of the plain. The regiments formed one after another before the eyes of the Poles, and were numerous, resembling a flock of many-coloured birds. Over their heads were raised toward the sun quadrangles of strong spears, with which the infantry shielded themselves against attacks of cavalry. Finally were seen crowds of Swedish armoured cavalry advancing at a trot along the wings. The artillery was drawn up and brought to the front in haste. All the preparations, all the movements, were as visible as something on the palm of the hand, for the sun had risen clearly, splendidly, and lighted up the whole country. The Pilitsa separated the two armies. On the Swedish bank, trumpets and kettledrums were heard, and the shouts of soldiers coming with all speed into line. Charnetsky ordered also to sound the crooked trumpets, and advance with his squadrons toward the river. Then he rushed with all the breath of his horse to the von Sovich squadron, which was nearest the Pilitsa. Old soldier, cried he to von Sovich, advance for me to the bridge. There dismount and to muskets. Let all their force be turned on you. Lead on. Von Sovich merely flushed a little from desire and waved his baton. The men shouted and shot after him like a cloud of dust driven by wind. When they came within three hundred yards of the bridge, they slackened the speed of their horses. Then two-thirds of them sprang from the saddles and advanced on a run to the bridge. But the Swedes came from the other side, 
and soon muskets began to play at first slowly then every moment more briskly as if a thousand flails were beating irregularly on a barn floor smoke stretched over the river shouts of encouragement were thundering from one and the other command the minds of both armies were bent to the bridge which was wooden narrow difficult to take but easy to defend still over this bridge alone was it possible to cross to the swedes a quarter of an hour later charnyetsky pushed forward lubomirsky's dragoons to the aid of vonsovich but the swedes now attacked the opposite front with artillery they drew up new pieces one after another and bombs began to fly with a howl over the heads of vonsovich's men and the dragoons to fall in the meadow and dig into the earth scattering mud and turf on those fighting the markgraf standing near the forest in the rear of the army watched the battle through a field glass from time to time he removed the glass from his eyes looked at his staff shrugged his shoulders and said with astonishment they have gone mad they want absolutely to force the bridge a few guns and two or three regiments might defend it against a whole army von sovich advanced still more stubbornly with his men hence the defence grew still more resolute the bridge became the central point of the battle toward which the whole swedish line was approaching and concentrating an hour later the entire swedish order of battle was changed and they stood with flank to their former position the bridge was simply covered with a rain of fire and iron von sovich's men were falling thickly meanwhile orders came more and more urgent to advance absolutely charnyetsky is murdering those men cried lubomirsky on a sudden vitovsky as an experienced soldier saw that evil was happening and his whole body quivered with impatience at last he could endure no longer spurring his horse till the beast groaned piteously he rushed to charnyetsky who during all this time it was unknown why was pushing men toward the river your grace cried vitovsky blood is flowing for nothing we cannot carry that bridge i do not want to carry it answered charnyetsky then what does your grace want what must we do to the river with the squadrons to the river and you to your place here charnyetsky's eyes flashed such lightnings that vitovsky withdrew without saying a word meanwhile the squadrons had come within twenty paces of the bank and stood in a long line parallel with the bed of the river none of the officers or the soldiers had the slightest suspicion of what they were doing in a flash charnyetsky appeared like a thunderbolt before the front of the squadrons there was fire in his face lightning in his eyes a sharp wind had raised the burka on his shoulders so that it was like strong wings his horse sprang and reared casting fire from his nostrils the castellan dropped his sword on its pennant took the wrap from his head and with hair erect shouted to his division gentlemen the enemy defends himself with this water and jeers at us he has sailed through the sea to crush our fatherland and he thinks that we in defence of it cannot swim through this river 
Here he hurled his cap to the earth, and seizing his sabre, pointed with it to the swollen waters. Enthusiasm bore him away, for he stood in the saddle and shouted more mightily still, To whom God, faith, fatherland are all, follow me! And pressing the horse with the spurs so that the steed sprang as it were into space, he rushed into the river. The wave plashed around him. Man and horse were hidden under water, but they rose in the twinkle of an eye. After my master, cried Mihauko, the same who had covered himself with glory at Rudnik, and he sprang into the water. After me, shouted Vordiovsky with a shrill but thin voice, and he sprang in before he had finished shouting. Oh, Jesus, oh, Mary, bellowed Zagwoba, raising his horse for the leap. With that, an avalanche of men and horses dashed into the river, so that it struck both banks with wild impetus. After the louder squadron went Vishnevetsky's, then Vitovsky's, then Stapkovsky's, after that all the others. Such a frenzy seized the men that the squadrons crowded one another in emulation. The shouts of command were mingled with the roar of the soldiers. The river overflowed the banks and foamed itself into milk in a moment. The current bore the regiments down somewhat, but the horses, pricked with spurs, swam like a countless herd of dolphins, snorting and groaning. They filled the river to such a degree that the massive heads of horses and riders formed, as it were, a bridge on which a man might have passed with dry foot to the other bank. Charnyetsky swam over first, but before the water had dropped from him, the louder squadron had followed him to land. Then he waved his baton and cried to Vordiovsky, On a gallop! Strike! And to the Vishnevetsky squadron under Shandarovsky, With them! And so he sent the squadrons one after another, till he had sent all. He stood at the head of the last himself and shouting, in the name of God, with luck, followed the others. Two regiments of Swedish cavalry posted in reserve saw what was happening, but such amazement had seized the colonels that before they could move from their tracks, the louder men, urging their horses to the highest speed and sweeping with irresistible force, struck the first regiment, scattered that as a whirlwind scatters leaves, hurled it against the second, brought that to disorder. Then Shandarovsky came up, and a terrible slaughter began, but of short duration. After a while, the Swedish ranks were broken, and a disordered throng plunged forward toward the main army. Charnitsky's squadron pursued them with a fearful outcry, slashing, thrusting, strewing the field with corpses. At last it was clear why Charnyetsky had commanded von Sovich to carry the bridge, though he had no thought of crossing it. The chief attention of the whole army had been concentrated on that point. Therefore, no one defended, or had time to defend, the river itself. Besides, nearly all the artillery and the entire front of the Swedish army was turned toward the bridge, and now when 3,000 cavalry were rushing with all impetus against the flank of that army, it was needful to change the order of battle to form a new front, to defend themselves even well or ill against the shock. 
Now rose a terrible haste and confusion. Infantry and cavalry regiments turned with all speed to face the enemy, straining themselves in their hurry, knocking one against another, not understanding commands in the uproar, acting independently. In vain did the officers make superhuman efforts. In vain did the Markgraf move straightway the regiments of cavalry posted at the forest, before they came to any kind of order, before the infantry could put the butt-ends of their lances in the ground to hold the points to the enemy, the louder squadron fell, like the spirit of death, into the very midst of their ranks. After it a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth squadron. Then began the day of judgment. The smoke of musketry fire covered, as if with a cloud, the whole scene of conflict and in that cloud screams, seething, unearthly voices of despair, shouts of triumph, the sharp clang of steel, as if in an infernal forge, the rattling of muskets. At times a flag shone and fell in the smoke, then the gilded point of a regimental banner, and again you saw nothing, but a roar was heard more and more terrible, as if the earth had broken on a sudden under the river, and its waters were tumbling down into fathomless abysses. Now on the flank other sounds were heard. This was von Sovich, who had crossed the bridge and was marching on the new flank of the enemy. After this, the battle did not last long. From out that cloud, large groups of men began to push and run toward the forest in disorder, wild, without caps, without helmets, without armour. Soon after them burst out a whole flood of people in the most dreadful disorder. Artillery, infantry, cavalry, mingled together, fled toward the forest at random, in alarm and terror. Some soldiers cried in sky-piercing voices, others fled in silence, covering their heads with their hands. Some, in their haste, threw away their clothing, others stopped those running ahead, fell down themselves, trampled one another, and right there behind them, on their shoulders and heads, rushed a line of Polish cavaliers. Every moment you saw whole ranks of them spurring their horses and rushing into the densest throngs of men. No one defended himself longer. All went under the sword. Body fell upon body. The Poles hewed without rest, without mercy, on the whole plain along the bank of the river toward the forest as far as the eye could reach you saw merely pursued and pursuing only here and there scattered groups of infantry offered an irregular despairing resistance the cannons were silent the battle ceased to be a battle it had turned into a slaughter all that part of the army which fled toward the forest was cut to pieces only a few squadrons of Swedish troopers entered it. After them, the light squadrons of Poles sprang in among the trees. But in the forest, peasants were waiting for that unslain remnant, the peasants who at the sound of the battle had rushed together from all the surrounding villages. The most terrible pursuit, however, continued on the road to Warsaw, along which the main forces of the Swedes were fleeing. The young Markgraf Adolf struggled twice to cover the retreat, but beaten twice, he fell into captivity himself. His auxiliary division of French infantry, 
composed of 400 men, threw away their arms, 3,000 chosen soldiers, musketeers and cavalry fled as far as Nishev. The musketeers were cut down in Nishev, the cavalry were pursued toward Chesk until they were scattered completely through the forest, reeds and brush. There the peasants hunted them out one by one on the morrow. Before the sun had set, the army of Friedrich, Markgraf of Baden, had ceased to exist. On the first scene of battle there remained only the standard-bearers with their standards, for all the troops had followed the enemy, and the sun was well inclined to its setting when the first bodies of cavalry began to appear from the side of the forest and Mnishev. They returned with singing and uproar, hurling their caps in the air, firing from pistols. Almost all led with them crowds of bound prisoners. These walked at the sides of the horses. They were without caps, without helmets, with heads drooping on their breasts, torn, bloody, stumbling every moment against the bodies of fallen comrades. The field of battle presented a terrible sight. In places where the struggle had been fiercest, there lay simply piles of bodies half a spear length in height. Some of the infantry still held in their stiffened hands long spears. The whole ground was covered with spears. In places they were sticking still in the earth. Here and there pieces of them formed as it were fences and pickets. But on all sides was presented mostly a dreadful and pitiful mingling of bodies, of men mashed with hoofs, broken muskets, drums, trumpets, caps, belts, tin boxes which the infantry carried, hands and feet sticking out in such disorder from the piles of bodies that it was difficult to tell to what body they belonged. In those places specially where the infantry defended itself, whole breastworks of corpses were lying. Somewhat farther on, near the river, stood the artillery, now cold, some pieces overturned by the onrush of men, others, as it were, ready to be fired. At the sides of them lay the cannoneers, now held in eternal sleep. Many bodies were hanging across the guns and embracing them with their arms, as if those soldiers wished still to defend them after death. The brass, spotted with blood and brains, glittered with ill omen in the beams of the setting sun. The golden rays were reflected in stiffened blood, which here and there formed little lakes. Its nauseating odour was mingled over the whole field with the smell of powder, the exhalation from bodies, and the sweat of horses. Before the setting of the sun, Charnyetsky returned with the king's regiment, and stood in the middle of the field. The troops greeted him with a thundering shout. Whenever a detachment came up, it cheered without end. He stood in the rays of the sun, wearied beyond measure, but all radiant, with bare head, his sword hanging on his belt, and he answered to every cheer, Not to me, gentlemen, not to me, but to the name of God. At his side were Vitovsky and Lubomirsky, the latter as bright as the sun itself, for he was in gilded plate armour, his face splashed with blood. 
for he had worked terribly and laboured with his own hand as a simple soldier but discontented and gloomy for even his own regiments shouted vivat charnetsky dux et victor commander and conqueror envy began then to dive into the soul of the marshal meanwhile new divisions rolled in from every side of the field each time an officer came up and threw a banner captured from the enemy at charnetsky's feet at sight of this rose new shouts new cheers hurling of caps into the air and the firing of pistols the sun was sinking lower and lower then in the one church that remained after the fire in varka they sounded the angelus that moment all uncovered their heads father pirkarski the company priest began to intone the angel of the lord announced unto the most holy virgin mary and a thousand iron breasts answered at once with deep voices and she conceived of the holy ghost all eyes were raised to the heavens which were red with the evening twilight and from that bloody battlefield began to rise a pious hymn to the light playing in the sky before night just as they had ceased to sing the louder squadron began to come up at a trot it had chased the enemy farthest the soldiers threw more banners at charnitsky's feet he rejoiced in heart and seeing vordiovsky urged his horse toward him and asked have many of them escaped pan mihal shook his head as a sign that not many had escaped but he was so near being breathless that he was unable to utter one word he merely gasped with open mouth time after time so that his breast was heaving at last he pointed to his lips as a sign that he could not speak charnitsky understood him and pressed his head he has toiled said he god grant us more such zagwoba hurried to catch his breath and said with chattering teeth and broken voice for god's sake the cold wind is blowing on me and i am all in a sweat paralysis will strike me pull the clothes off some fat swede and give them to me for everything on me is wet wet and it is wet in this place i know not what is water what is my own sweat and what is swedish blood if i have ever expected in my life to cut down so many of those scoundrels i am not fit to be the crupper of a saddle the greatest victory of this war but i will not spring into water a second time eat not drink not sleep not and then a bath i have had enough in my old years my hand is benumbed paralysis has struck me already gorailka for the dear god charnetsky hearing this and seeing the old man really covered completely with the blood of the enemy took pity on his age and gave him his own canteen zagwaba raised it to his mouth and after a while returned it empty then he said i have gulped so much water in the pilitsa that we shall soon see how fish will hatch in my stomach but that gorailka is better than water dress in other clothes even swedish said charnetsky i'll find a big swede for uncle said roch why should i have bloody clothes from a corpse said zagoba 
take off everything to the shirt from that general whom I captured. Have you taken a general? asked Charnyetsky with animation. Whom have I not taken? Whom have I not slain? answered Zagloba. Now Vovodyovsky recovered speech. We have taken the younger Mark Graf, Adolf, Count Falkenstein, General Wengier, General Potter, Benzi, not counting inferior officers. But the Mark Graf Friedrich, asked Charnyetsky. If he has not fallen here, he has escaped to the forest. But if he has escaped, the peasants will kill him. Vovodyovsky was mistaken in his provisions. The Markgraf Friedrich, with Counts Schlippenbach and Ehrenhain, wandering through the forest, made their way in the night to Chersk. After sitting there in the ruined castle three days and nights in hunger and cold, they wandered by night to Warsaw. That did not save them from captivity afterward. This time, however, they escaped. It was night when Charnyetsky came to Varka from the field. That was perhaps the gladdest night of his life, for such a great disaster the Swedes had not suffered since the beginning of the war. All the artillery, all the flags, all the officers, except the chief, were captured. The army was cut to pieces, driven to the four winds. The remnants of it were forced to fall victims to bands of peasants. But besides, it was shown that those Swedes who held themselves invincible could not stand before regular Polish squadrons in the open field. Charnyetsky understood at last what a mighty result this victory would work in the whole Commonwealth. How it would raise courage, how it would rouse enthusiasm. He saw already the whole Commonwealth, in no distant future, free from oppression, triumphant. Perhaps, too, he saw with the eyes of his mind the gilded baton of the great hetman on the sky. He was permitted to dream of this, for he had advanced toward it as a true soldier, as a defender of his country, and he was of those who grow not from salt nor from the soil, but from that which pains them. Meanwhile, he could hardly embrace with his whole soul the joy which flowed in upon him. Therefore, he turned to Lubomirsky, riding at his side, and said, Now to Sandomierge, to Sandomierge with all speed, since the army knows now how to swim rivers, neither the Saan nor the Vistula will frighten us. Lubomirsky said not a word. But Zagwoba, riding a little apart in Swedish uniform, permitted himself to say aloud, Go where you like, but without me, for I am not a weathercock to turn night and day without food or sleep. Charnyetsky was so rejoiced that he was not only not angry, but he answered in jest, You are more like the belfry than the weathercock, since, as I see, you have sparrows in your head. But as to eating and rest, it belongs to all. To which Zagwoba said, but in an undertone, Whoso has a beak on his face has a sparrow on his mind. End of chapter 35 Recording by David Granville Young